so I was asleep and Charlie, I could hear Charlie yelling. And she was like, there's a massive, massive boat coming past on the horizon. Like, what's on AIS? Which is like, kind of like, you can see the other ships around you. I was like, there's nothing there. She was like, it's there. It's, there. it's huge. It's, it's got like, all its lights on. It's getting bigger. It's the moon. It's the moon. Uh, just rising. And we did that three times on the boat, thinking the moon was the boat coming towards us. Once we almost tried to radio the moon to uh, so make sure it had seen us. That's ED doctors Charlie and Adam describing the kinds of ridiculous situations you find yourself in when you're sleep deprived whilst rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. My name's Dr. Will Duffin, and this pair of legends are my latest guests on the World Extreme Medicine podcast. Charlie and Adam are an Exeter-based husband and wife team aptly named the Emergency Duo, who decided to temporarily hang up their scrubs and take on the world's toughest rowing race, the Talisker Whiskey Challenge. I caught up with them shortly after finishing, and we talked about transitioning from working in ED to doing an ultra endurance rowing race, medical kits, the research they did on their row, the toll this challenge has taken on their bodies, what it was like spending Christmas and New Year at sea and lots, lots more. And if you'd like to meet Charlie and Adam in person and learn more about ocean rowing and generally becoming a medical maverick, then please join us at this year's World Extreme Medicine Conference, which is on the 19th to the 21st of November in Edinburgh. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more. Please enjoy this conversation with the Emergency Duo. Charlie and Adam, it's so great to see you both. You're both looking very well. You came ashore three weeks ago. How are you so fresh-faced? <laughs> It's been uh, it's been really bizarre being back on land, and yeah, I don't quite know where the last three weeks have gone. It almost was the same time as the fifty-one days we spent at sea. Um, yeah, really nice to be back on steady, steady ground. And, and you're both ED docs, and um, I know that while well, your cat's been away, she hasn't been too pleased, and presumably neither has the rotor manager at uh, at ED. And both those parties, it sounds like they're both punishing you for being away. <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, uh, yeah, we've got, we, we start our shifts very shortly and I think predominantly will be night shifts because um, that's where the gaps are. <laughs> but at least we're used to the sleep deprivation from the road. <laughs> Straight back into nights. Yeah, that's, that's pretty savage. And, and your cat's pretty needy as well, I gather. Yeah, they've both been uh, a little needy since they've got back. Lots of crying, lots of suffering. You might hear them in the background. <laughs> I think they're just too frank. Every time I go out the door now, I think they're like, well, is that another three months? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a hell of an achievement. 3,000 mile row across the Atlantic. Tell us a little bit about the context of this trip. So you, you both were working very hard in ED before heading out. Tell us what it's been like as frontline ED docs in the lead up to this. Um, I think like everyone's found, it's been extremely hard. Um, and I think ED is a specialty anyway. Um, you're seeing it all in the, the news. It's just the pressures are just increasing and increasing. And there's no kind of um, contingency plan for that because we've got the same amount of staff, same amount of trainees, same amount of space beds. Um, you know, the, the 
process of through ED out the other side um, and being looked after in the community is all the same, but uh, just a huge population and more complex cases coming in as well. So it, it is really, really stressful and it has been for years really. Yeah. But yeah, we, we both um, were desperately needing a bit of a, a break kind of from our well mental well-being as well, really. <laughs> Wasn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think it kind of came here at an interesting time. So obviously, Charlie was going to end. Well, there was initially Charlie who entered the race, and COVID hit, so I had to delay a year, which is when I then got on board. And I think the our jobs prepared us in one hand, in that there is that kind of um, working in a really challenging, stressful environment. There's the shift patterns; we switch from days to nights really frequently. There's lots of stuff that we could take straight away into the row without having to do any kind of additional training, which I think was a benefit. But we both felt that we obviously went into the row really exhausted and really tired, which is, was kind of the drawback of that. Um, yeah, and it's obviously really difficult time to step away. Thankfully, at the time when we did step away, all the kind of COVID cases at that point had died right down. But it's just the normal ED workload that's been building over the last five, ten years. It's just getting more and more that we're, yeah, we'll be getting back into the thick of it in a few days' time. And some people, when they choose a career break, they go and bum around the Caribbean for a while or do something nice and relaxing. But you chose to take on the world's toughest row. Sitting where you are now, having completed this challenge, and congratulations, by the way, do you feel refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to attack the ED? Yeah, weirdly, yes. Um, yeah, it obviously was an absolutely exhausting challenge where the most sleep we ever got at one point was 80 minutes uh, in 51 days. Um, and but I think it give you, gave us both a new perspective on our careers and our lives kind of, uh, on a more personal level. And I think just taking that step out and being able to see the bigger picture has been really helpful for us. And I think sometimes the most medicine when it is so stressful and it is so busy all the time, it's really difficult to sometimes pull yourself back and have a little, a proper look and a proper evaluation of where you're at and what you want to get out of your career. Um, I, I certainly feel like it's been a, it was a huge big reset button. There was certainly, there was one night about, I think a week in where we didn't have any moon cover. Um, and there was no wind and no waves. And it was just, just up complete stillness. Like there wasn't a single bit of noise apart from your oar in the water. And there was just a little bit of bioluminescence when your oar touched the water. You stopped rowing, it was just nothing. And it was just a, such a contrast to what it's been like the last one, two, five years. And I think that was just a really profound moment for me on the road that was just like a really big reset button for me. Yeah. It was really lovely in that sense, getting so remote with such core, obviously we had from a safety um, perspective two satellite phones, but and they weren't going off. Uh, we were the ones that would use them to call people if we needed. So just having that silence and not that constant um, buzz of you know notifications, a beeping screen, people crying, screaming like this. Yeah, the, the silence and those outside pressures just going away, and literally having two people to look after rather than a whole department was really refreshing. Um, getting away from it all. I think it was no expectation that would people would hear from us either. So there was obviously no one expected us to answer an email or send a text, and I think it, just removing that was a big relief by itself. Because we're now with kind of all the apps on our phones where you get instant WhatsApps, instant emails, the kind of the pressure is almost that when you get that work, like I've got my work email on my phone, 
just probably a terrible idea because you add it for what you think is efficiency, but actually there's just this huge stress then where people probably think that I should be replying within a few hours rather than what used to be days or even taking that time to write a letter to someone. Those days are gone. Now it's going to get back instantly. Yeah. I mean, isn't it, isn't it mad in, in a kind of hyper-connected modern life that we have that you have to go to such extreme lengths to find peace yeah, you have to bob up and down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean uh, to get away from that torrent of of inputs through email, and text messages, etc. Uh, but it's really nice to hear that you found that and you, you had that kind of moment where you could get some perspective and, and distance from, from the kind of pace of, of life. So that was really nice to hear that. So let's talk about the row itself. Now, you're both shift workers and in some ways the one of the biggest parallels between the row and your usual work was working in shifts there's there's you both have to keep the both boat moving so you were uh rowing two hours on two hours off throughout the the time you're out there do you feel that the the shift work in in ed has helped you prepare for that that kind of punishing schedule Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> our, our body clocks are just permanently confused anyway, I think. Um, and as you say, like ED is a stressful environment, so being able to be sleep deprived but still being able to function at quite a high level in a stressful situation and resorting to protocols or process driven things in order to know that you're going to reduce any amount of error you possibly can definitely set us up well for the shifts. Um, and I think. Actually, we both adapted really quickly. Um, we get, by the time you get off the oars, you've got to do your personal hygiene, quickly eat, rehydrate, and possibly use the bucket, which is our, our ensuite, um, and then go to sleep. So you'd end up falling to sleep quite quickly. Um, I think the issue we had was we then sometimes woke up quite quickly thinking that we'd had a full 80 minutes sleep and actually the other person would be like what are you doing coming out you've been down for like five minutes so um your your body clock really does get messed up but I wouldn't say that any point obviously we were tired but um the actual task on the boat of just rowing is quite I wouldn't say relaxing but monotonous and and quite nice in a yeah. way um, and it's all it's quite rhythmical so you can yeah. get really into it and yeah 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 it's good yeah, I think it, when your alarm went off that felt punishing and it was kind of like no, not me again like please anyone else but as soon as you got out into the fresh air and kind of got back on the oars once you yeah got over the initial pain in your bottom consisting back on the seat yeah. it was really nice um, yeah yeah, you'd break it down in those chunks as well. So you'd know three of your shifts are going to be in the pitch black. It's going to be cold. You're probably going to get wet with a couple of waves. But then one of you gets to see a sunrise. One of you gets to see a sunset. Then in the day, you've got this just expanse of just blue. Um, so, I mean, the the nature just picks yeah. your mood right you up and keeps you going, yeah. Now, in, in my domestic situation, my wife and I, you know, we, we're, we're big on fairness and, you know, I'm often criticised for not really doing the dishes or the laundry and things. And, yeah, in your kind of marital domestic situation on board this boat, were there any periods where there was perhaps some perceived unfairness, where you had some spats? Uh, did the pressures really kind of close in on you? Did you have any some big fallouts over, you know, making sure you're both pulling your weight? It's weird. So I, I honestly thought, I, I kind of going into it, I would have done it if I didn't think we would have 
could do it or um, that we wouldn't have been okay. So I knew that we'd come out the other side, but I honestly thought we were going to argue quite a lot just with the seat deprivation. Just like little spats, but weirdly not. And I think we, because of that shift pattern of two hours on, two hours off, there was kind of almost an overlap period, but it almost felt a little bit like our professional lives because we'll often work opposite shifts to we see each other in handover and we'll give a little handover to each other and then kind of one person's going home. And it was almost the same on the boat. So it was almost like a little mini professional handover, like, right, what are the conditions? Is the wind changed? Do we need any direction change? And then you change shifts. So I think that kind of allowed you to have a bit of space because of those alternating shifts. So I think, A, that helped for one. We did have two big arguments, <laughs> uh, and they were both around direction change, and they were both mistakes I made just whilst tired. So we had a little personal locator beacon attached to our harness that we wore all the time. And mine was kind of slightly broken and also attached uh, around my side. And then because it was irritating me, I'd kind of spun my harness slightly in a different position. So the beacon was on the back sticking out. And I'm not the most flexible person in the world. So when I had to get into the cabin, I walked in backwards. And I accidentally, that beacon hit our deck repeater, which controls our direction. Um, and I basically just turned off our direction. Uh, it was pitch black. So it took Charlie a little bit of time to realize that that had happened when the conditions suddenly changed. We were going head headwinds like and head straight first into some big swell yeah. uh, so that did not go down well for one <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I think I think it we yeah, I think probably it was partly because Charlie was like oh, you, you turn it off and I was like no I haven't it's fine mainly because I just wanted to go to sleep uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then I had to come out and what was like a few seconds ends up costing you kind of 20 minutes because when you're pinned by the wind trying to get back on track with the waves crashing over you it's really hard and then the other time was really similar in that I'd just woken up from a shift. I carefully looked at our chart position. I was like, oh, I think we probably need to change by one or two degrees. Open the door, communicated that to Charlie. She agreed. And then instead of pressing uh, minus one uh, degree, I ended up pressing plus 10. And Charlie quickly saw what I'd done. I was like, you pressed plus 10. I was like, ah, and then tried to do minus 10 and ended up doing another plus 10 and then panicked again and did plus 10 again so instead of minus one we did plus 30 which broke the steering spanned the boat again really big conditions just caused absolute chaos from, from a well-meaning from a well-meaning direction change just chaos and shoes for about 20 minutes and you were not impressed <laughs> amazing how quickly it unravels what was your uh, your thoughts on that moment charlie um there were words going through my head that I didn't say out loud. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know it's an accident. But I think when because it's also a race, we just we didn't want to just complete it. But we wanted to you know win our category and things. So um, that, as I'd said, those few seconds it takes then adds in you know twenty thirty minutes or you know reduces the amount that you're rowing in the correct and. Um, quickest um, course as well so um, and when you're just putting everything into every shift rowing and then someone goes <laughs> changes your direction you're like ah! 20 um, minutes sounds like nothing in the context of 51 days but it is it, so painful at the time we're like oh, 20 minutes like, yeah especially I think in the conditions we had so when we signed up the row we, we'd all heard about the trade winds which kind of go follow the boat into the right ish direction to, to give you a bit of a hand 
<laughs> they were literally non-existent. Yeah. And the weather we had this year... Conspiracy. Yeah, the, yeah, the weather we had this year... Even the local <laughs> fishermen said it was very bizarre and there were lots of countercurrents. So you really would be putting your all on those ships in order to keep the boat the momentum because these boats weigh a ton the momentum of the boat and also to keep above a certain speed to allow the auto helm that's keeping you on track so you're not having to hand steer so it meant Adam could sleep otherwise you'd both be up for the the entire day so yeah I was on the YB Races app I was an avid dot watcher during the course of the race and when you after you set off I noticed that you guys were heading much further south than I expected. And I was like, hey, hang on. Hey, wait, guys, guys, guys. It's uh, Caribbean's that way. <laughs> it's, it's west. What are you doing? <laughs> so um, wh- why did you make that decision navigationally to head south before you then tracked west? There's kind of a, there's a balance to be had. So there were two main factors. So you want to try and get south to get the better winds and the better currents. But not so far south that you're then just wasting miles because it is obviously as the crow flies you want to head straight across but you'll see all the boats will kind of come off that line and go south to a degree so it's all just trying to find that right weather and then and as we were setting off there was a big uh, kind of swell further north that was going to cause some big headwinds towards the north so we made the decision to head as far south as quickly as we could to try and avoid that annoying me that never actually came through so it kind of died much further north than any of the boats I know because we were we were so much south south of the other boats, we were like, "This is gonna be great." When it hits them, we're gonna fly through, and they're gonna be punished. But it's never quite <laughs> like classic, like never actually kind of came. You gotta take you gotta take a punt on these things, haven't you? But you know, it just sometimes doesn't pay off, does it? Yeah. So unfortunately not. But then we managed to kind of kind of regain a good position, and then yeah, obviously lots happened then in the penultimate days in terms of our positioning. But um, yeah, it was great seeing you chopping and changing and. Yeah, you, you're real competitors throughout the whole race. <laughs> I think that's one of the hardest part mentally in that race is to be in a race mentality for 51 days, for 24 hours of the day. It's so hard. And then to have the... You're doing everything that you've planned for and obviously being in ED, we constantly run through simulations in our head. Well, we were doing that, you know, pre-race with boat kind of simulations like what if we have a marlin strike? What if we, you know... Cut, yeah. One of us gets injured and can't row. What we all those situations. So you plan for everything, and then the one thing that's out of your control is that weather. <laughs> so I think mentally, that weather was the hardest part to to deal with. I think they kind of everyone just talks about it when you go in, but you kind of almost feel that you'll be able to control it better when you can't. But I think you, there's about twenty percent that is controllable, um, and it's just. That is punishing when there's so many variables that you can do nothing about. And we obviously try to maximise that 20% as much as we can. But, yeah, when you're then competing with Mother Nature, just you're never going to win. <laughs> I think that you have to show that humility, don't you, in, in that environment. And um, you mentioned Marlin Strike there, Charlie. That, that is a very real threat. And there's a great video that Adam's done on the medical kit that Charlie and, uh, and Adam took out on their row. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. But in that video, you talk about the threat of marlin strike, of, of uh, you know being asleep in your <laughs> in the boat, and this just fish with this giant kind of spear just kind of 
um, going through the hull of the boat and, and causing major chest trauma. It just sounds mad, doesn't it? Is that, is that how did you prepare then? For, for tell us a bit more about the, the threat of Marlin Strike and and, and how you. It's a weird one to prepare. So I think in the history of the race, it's been I guess rare. And then last year's race, there were four boats that got pierced by Marlin. I don't know if it's called a beak, but I'm going to call it a beak. Um, and yeah, and then this year we weren't, but there was another boat that was. Um, and so they've looked at kind of, they've spoken to animal behavioural experts and they're still not quite sure what the drive is. They thought COVID might have a play a part, given that there's less cruise ships and perhaps less food going overboard, other boats. And so what they're, they're not intending to attack the boat. There's little fish that feed off the little um, bits of grind that builds up on the bottom of your boat. That attracts bigger fish, bigger fish, and the marlins go for them. It's in a kind of feeding frenzy. I don't think I quite realised just how thin the bottom of the boat is. So when you're lying in your cabin, you are on, you're essentially just like a few centimetres. I don't even think that between you and the ocean. It's so thin that actually during sunrise and sunset, you can see the sun and the logos that are on the outside of our boat. I could see from the inside. And that was like, oh my God, there is nothing between me and something coming through that. There's talk about kind of putting, not on our particular boat, but the race as a whole and other teams are discussing putting like Kevlar down um, and having specialist bedding. Our kind of mindset going into it was that generally in the previous years when there have been mining attacks, it didn't kind of come completely out of the blue. There wasn't complete silence and then suddenly there was a spike coming through the boat. The mining was spotted and this kind of feeding frenzy, there was lots of thrashing around in the water. But our personal protocol was that if we spotted a marlin, the other person would wake up uh, and would have both of us out in the middle of the deck on our own seats so that we were raised off the ground. And that was just the way that we personally chose to manage it. And then obviously we put stuff in our first aid kit for kind of, yeah, chest seals, any to deal with any puncturines really. Um, uh, and that was how we felt that we could best manage that situation in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we didn't end up seeing any. I think I caught a glimpse of one. Um but yeah, thankfully we, we didn't get hit by one. But it's it's really difficult because you're you're so far away, and a lot of our medical kit discussions were around this. In that, if you are if you do become big sick, and help is two three days away, where do you draw the line of actually just let's let's just keep you comfortable? That's it. I'm sorry. Or trying we'll to see what he was hoping. Yeah, for. <laughs> trying to bring everything, <laughs> deal with everything. It just isn't isn't necessarily the right thing, no. and especially when you're trying to keep everything light and small. Yeah, space is yeah. just a free, yeah. and you're you're literally stripping paracetamol out of the packets, so you're not taking packets on board. That's yeah. how much you want the the space and the lack of weight in order to be the lightest boat possible. So yeah, yeah it's a real toss up, isn't it? Of what you pack, how you can fit it all in, and then as I'd said, that kind of what is your kind of tertiary care out there? Um, so what's your your line with yeah. it's 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 really interesting to see your contribution to this debate because it's very tempting because you're in a dangerous environment to take a full icu with you and including all the airway stuff and defibs and everything but did, did you even have a defib did you deem that that was worthwhile no so no so i think that the most extreme thing we had was the, like a modified needle decompression thing from prometheus today it allowed it was essentially just an even bigger cannula that you could um had a little catheter on the end so you could feed off so kind of almost like a modified chest strain that didn't need any kind of yeah. uh fill um water seal or anything like that 
Um, yeah, that was yeah. that was it. That's where we drew the line. Yeah, but I mean, if, if, if you have a tension pneumothorax or something, that's something you can treat and reverse. But if someone's sick enough to need defibrillation, then the, the chance of a good outcome with two to three day to, to definitive care is is so poor. It's almost it's just not worth even right. going. And there, it's probably the amount of people you speak to who are like, "Oh, you just get a helicopter out there." Like, they're not coming. They can't reach that. Yeah, and yeah, it's just it's out of range. Isn't it? Yeah, and I think people just and another big thing is everyone's like, "Well, there'll be." there's a support yacht that will come and get you. And there are there are two yachts that kind of go amongst the fleet, but it can be five days away. And depending on the conditions, they might take even longer to get to you. So, or a big tanker has rescued people before, and even that has its own dangers, trying to be extracted onto a massive tank. You've still got to be well enough to potentially climb up a ladder. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I think people underestimate what rescue means out there and actually yeah. that in itself can be just as dangerous as whatever the initial injury was um yeah and it was amazing we saw a cruise ship as we crossed which i don't think you, you tend to see much traffic as you're crossing and i saw it on the horizon and i was like oh my goodness that's huge realized what it was obviously we radioed and we're in the chat with the captain but when it then actually came it came to kind of alter course to come see us and i think it was up to 400 feet away even then, I was very nervous, and it yeah. looked like just a four-story yeah, building up against real. you because your ocean rowing boat is, as I said, right on the water. I mean, you're no higher than a meter off the surface of the water. So they're looking up at these. Well, yeah. even when they're a couple of hundred meters off, they still can't see you, and they're kind of radioing like, "We know you're there because we can see your position, but like, where where are you?" <laughs> yeah. it just it's so hard yeah. to spot. Yeah, they're thinking someone might have to be rescued. <laughs> it's yeah. like five. It's like yeah, climbing up a building basically. <laughs> there were uh, very very small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> speed deprivation was an absolute wonder day. So an absolute classic. There were a few times when we thought we saw other big boats like that come in quite fast. So, yeah, so I was asleep, and Charlie, I could hear Charlie yelling, and she was like, there's a massive, massive boat coming past on the horizon, like, what's on the AIS, which is like, kind of like, you can see the other ships around you, I was like, there's nothing there, she was like, it's there, it's, it's there. huge, it's, it's like, all oh, its lights on, it's getting bigger, it's the moon, it's uh, just, <laughs> and we did that three times on the boat, thinking the moon was the boat coming towards us, once we almost tried to radio the moon, uh, to make sure it had seen us. And we stopped, we both, like, literally just before we, like, pressed the thing to be, to put a radio broadcast in the emergency channel for an unidentified vessel, both of us went, it's the moon, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, we've done it again. Yep. Especially when all the helicopters turn up, or, yeah, the, the full... <laughs> Rescue operation is there. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, sorry about that. Um, that everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it wasn't just a race, though. You you were doing some research out there. Give us a flavour of what that was all about. Yeah, so um, I obviously we've both done the Masters in Extreme Medicine, work run by World Extreme Medicine. And for that, I'd focused on the rowers um, two years prior, looking at kind of um, muscle fatigability and um, body composition changes. Um, and I was also desperate to try and do some psychology research, but it's it's such a hard environment and every any off period, you did, I don't think people really want to spend filling stuff out or doing anything. So Adam and I did um, do some psychology research. Our questionnaires are still on the boat. It's being shipped back. But 
um, looking at kind of profile of mood state and your rate of perceived exertion. And obviously there's just the two of us, but it'll be very interesting kind of as that feasibility side um, in order to see what happens every single day because no one's captured that real time. And in these ultra endurance events, a lot of uh, the research is not real time or it's in laboratory kind of confinements which don't really mimic the real thing um, and a lot of it's done on kind of foot events um, rather than ocean rowing events mm-hmm. um, and being that remote um, so it'd be yeah it'd be really interesting to see what our pr- profile of new states show I'd love to have captured a bit of kind of the post expedition because obviously people know about the expedition blues and especially in that environment kind of going it's the decision making we both got off the boat very wobbly and because you haven't really had to make that many decisions and things um it's just all a bit overwhelming and the sensory overload of that finish line and the boats honking their horns and all those people there and having to make conversation that wasn't like a couple of sentences at a time and like it like mentally it's just yeah a lot of stimulation and a lot a lot of a different kind of lifestyle to what you've had so, so you're presented um, with a menu with loads of food choices loads of cocktails yeah. and you're like i can't pick i don't know <laughs> yeah um, um yeah um it's yeah it would be great to kind of re you know develop on on what we find out in our psychology side of things um we both also looked at our body composition um and uh well i think I lost 11 kilos um, in body mass, you lost nine, so mine was 17% of my weight and yours was 11. 11%. Um, and previously looking, it tends to be that you lose what you've got to lose um, and that uh, women tend to lose more fat than muscle and males tend to, to lose more muscle. Um, so it's just kind of building on what data there is out there and adding that into the mix really. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. shocking to see, like, you know when you're rowing that you've lost weight because yeah. things get baggier, your harness gets looser. But I think it wasn't until we saw the kind of finished photos, you were kind of like, oof. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. funny you say that because that's the first thing I noticed when I saw your pictures of you guys at the finish line. Uh, and I just thought, wow, they are, they, you know, you look so, you, you look kind of trim, but also slightly emaciated, slightly unwell with that because I, I, just the toll of being out at sea and losing all those calories um i, I presume you're, you're doing your best to, to put all that back on yeah quite a lot went back on in antigua <laughs> yeah <I bet. laughs> strong cocktail game out there but um yeah uh yeah hopefully we'll try and keep we definitely had kind of a bit to lose so we went into it having put some weight on so knowing that that was going to be the case but um yeah I think it's the muscles as well because you're not walking. I think you work out that you do 20, we did 25 steps per day out of the cabin, just two steps onto your seat. So your body is just not used to it being in that kind of posture. Um, so you're, you're like bones of your yeah. pelvis and your lower back oh, are like, what are you doing? And your calves waste and your glutes waste. Um, they say yeah. you can spot an ocean row in Antigua because they're all walking with a slight stoop because right, you right. don't stand up straight for the entire time. Because so even when you're like getting up to change seats, you're kind of holding the guard rail and stoops over. So you mean keep that stoop. You're not stood up straight. You've got terrible calf pains. You've got this like awkward waddle. You can't sit down on anything that hasn't got a pillow on it. And then you we still can't fully make a fist. So you kind of got these like weird T Rex hands that don't quite work. <laughs> you can't like we still can't open bottles. We can't squeeze toothpaste. When you've just been able to get our wedding rings back on, uh, it's really bizarre. 
Yeah, that is really incredible how the body adapts to, to that specific environment and how long it takes then to readjust back to normal life. Yeah, yeah definitely. Wow. It's crazy what you can push your body through. It just, it just takes it. And you both spent Christmas and New Year at sea. How did you celebrate? Well, it was really nice. So uh, I think it was the first Christmas we'd had off together in five years. Um, so one of us had always unfortunately been working or been on call for it. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get any kind of decent Christmas meal out there. So we kind of tried to be a bit lateral thinking. So we had pigs in blanket flavoured crisps and uh, beef wellington flavoured crisps. Roast chicken flavoured crisps. Roast chicken flavoured crisps. A couple of very uh, oh, oranges. Uh, some Santa hats, blasting the Christmas tunes as loud as we could, uh, yeah, singing top of our voices. Uh, it was really fun, actually. Um, very different, and at Christmas we won't forget for a while. And then New Year's was actually just a really tough night. It was a really difficult weather condition, so we kind of wanted to relax a little bit, but actually we, we just had to kind of crack down and get our heads on. So we've had the music playing. I kind of woke up, I was sleeping at the time, so woke up for New Year's and we kind of sang Old Lang, Old Lang Syne together and kind of celebrated a little bit. But actually, it was just a tough, tough night. Um, so that one wasn't quite so fun. Uh, you, you, you're both alumni of the MSc in Extreme Medicine and both faculty with World Extreme Medicine. Just give us a, a sense of, of how doing the MSc has helped prepare you for extreme adventures like this. I think it, I don't think we probably would have got to this point in our lives had we not done the Masters in Extreme Medicine. So just as a context, neither of us had ever rode before. And I'm one of the world's most inflexible people and also seasick people. So if someone had told me that I was going to row 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, I would never, ever believe them. And so I think that doing the Masters in Extreme Medicine has opened up doors and possibilities that I would have never, ever even considered. And it's just given me the knowledge around human factors, especially in terms of how I operate and teams operate in stressful environments and how to maximize that, which I think was invaluable on the boat. And just how to, yeah, just being able to push those boundaries mentally and physically in those extreme environments, which I just would never have considered before. You've got kind of the modules of risk planning for expeditions and just thinking about taking medicine outside the confines of a hospital or a clinic and how laterally you have to think about certain things and how you can use, I don't know, pieces of kit in different ways and all that kind of side of stuff that just, yeah, kind of opens that up to your thinking and then you can, yeah, put that into play on, on, in your own expedition or your, your own challenge. Give us a sneak peek, Charlie and Adam, of what additional things you'll be talking to our delegates about at the conference this year. So I'm going to be talking about a lot about the big picture. So my career was so well structured, like a lot of medical careers are, up to kind of the end of F2. And then the plan was to kind of join the normal medical treadmill, get to consultancy, and things took a big detour. And I'm still loving those detours. So I want to talk a little bit about taking a step back from that normal pathway and looking at all these other opportunities that you can therefore make available to you. So that's going to be my big kind of reflection in our talk. Well, it's going to be similar in that aspect, but also um, go through a little bit of the research side of things that we've touched on, both physiological research and psychology behind things as well. Yeah, hopefully by then you'll have had time to go through all the data and 
<laughs> and, and yeah, it'd be some really useful insights, I think. I'm looking forward to, to learning about that too. So, and, and looking forward to seeing you both in Edinburgh. So thank you so much, Charlie and Adam, for your time. And it's great to see you looking so well and, uh, and yeah, before going back to work uh, and everything. And um, yeah, we'll see you both in Edinburgh. Really <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank so. you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate and share. And perhaps like Charlie and Adam, you would like to make exceptional things happen in your medical career by challenging traditional thinking and defying conventional boundaries. If so, maybe the Master's Programme in Extreme Medicine in partnership with Exeter University is your next step on this path. Follow the link in the show notes to find out more. In the meantime, stay extreme.